Today we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which uh, is, uh, in one hand, it's great. On one hand, it's tricky because it's it's almost a cultural proverb. There's a Good Sam Club, uh, a Good Good Samaritan is such a popular phrase for you know, everybody knows what a Good Samaritan is. A Good Samaritan is someone who goes out of their way to be to be helpful to somebody else. Uh, so it's, it's tricky in that regard. It's tricky to preach it because um, everybody thinks they know what this means for the most part, and almost everybody's wrong. <laughs> so let's listen to it together, and I want you to listen and be thinking to yourself, is this primarily about being a good person and helping other people, or maybe it's something about something else, Okay. So would you please stand, if you're able, let's, out of respect for the reading of God's word. I am not the speaker, I am only the reader. God is speaking to us now through his inerrant word. Let's listen intently together. Uh, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went around him, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's all kinds of schools of theological thought that think that, that, that try to interpret this passage. Uh, For example, one, there's a view in the church, there's a view, a doctrine in the church that's called, sometimes called the spirituality of the church. And in its most radical forms, what it says is, and what people try to argue is, that since the church is only authorized and commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel, uh, to administer the sacraments, and to... uh, to engage in church discipline, in other words, training in righteousness and the discipline of the saints, uh, and also uh, because all of the passages about mercy in the New Testament and care for one another are all 
I'll, I'll preface by brother or sister, in other words, fellow Christians. Therefore, the church is not even authorized to extend any kind of mercy or service or care or love to anyone outside the church in its most radical form. That's what it says. And there's, there's some truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. The spirituality of the church in a good form really does uh, express that. The primary mission of the church is to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, to teach theology, to discipline the saints, to raise us up into righteousness, and to care for uh, people through our, for, through our deacons, the material needs of saints through the deacons. But just because that's the primary mission of the church doesn't mean that there's other aspects of what the church can be doing in the world so that there's good in it but there's also bad people can use that argument uh, that religious argument to hide behind to avoid uh, historically fighting slavery to avoid segregation to avoid dealing with systemic racism and oppression in the the church and in the world Uh, that argument can be used to hide behind another camp totally on the other side of the spectrum is uh, something that's called the social gospel. Maybe you've heard of people talk about that. In the 19th century, there was, just, there was something called the Second Great Awakening. Maybe you've heard about that. Some, some theologians have called it the Not-So-Great Awakening because, <laughs> because there, uh, the, the, the big thrust of the Second Great Awakening had gotten very far away or, or far enough away from Orthodox uh, Christian uh, belief in salvation, and there was a big push to f- create this benevolent Christian empire where as we, as we moved into this golden age where Christianity would take over the world and solve all social problems and then and create a perfect world, and the church became so much about that that when scientific challenges and higher critical challenges came and hit the Bible at the turn of the century... Uh, in the 1920s, a lot of people abandoned the cardinal doctrines of the faith and all they had left to hold on to was this social experiment, this, uh, this idea of social justice, and that became the gospel. In other words, the gospel's not about God coming to earth and living a perfectly righteous life to save his people and dying to pay for our sins. The, the gospel is that we model the love of God in the world and we bring this kind of justice and peace in the world through our actions of service and social justice. Uh, and there's some good in that, too. The church is called to love the world, but uh, that view totally lost the gospel, totally lost the essence of what it means to be Christian. Uh, and so, you know, these two fights, the people war against one another, and this side... Uh, the spirituality of the church side, whenever anybody says we have some obligation to love the world or love people in the world, they say, you're social gospel. And the social gospel people, when they say we have an obligation to love the world, this side says, you're not even Christian. And they war against one another among other warring parties in that awful milieu of what the church is in the 21st century. And the reality is uh, they're both right in what they affirm and they're both wrong in what they deny. And the truth is balanced. The truth is, and what Jesus is trying to teach in this passage, is that Jesus is showing us what we are really like so that we can see how beautiful the gospel really is and then extend the kingdom of God into the world.
That's the thrust of this passage. You feeling me? Yeah. So let's look at that. Let's look at that one part at a time. Jesus shows us what we're really like. Let me, let me reread the first four verses, 25 through 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Uh, If you read it, you just kind of read it quick, it seems pretty cut and dried. Jesus and this attorney, he's a a lawyer. That means he's a theologian. He's a specialist in the law, a specialist. He's an Old Testament theologian. Jesus and him go back and forth. He's like, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you're a lawyer. What do you think? What does the Bible say? And he says, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, And he quotes Leviticus 19.18, says, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, These two great commandments. Uh, And Jesus says, yep, that's it. Do that. Seems cut and dried. So conclusion, uh, Jesus says to be saved, obey the law. Easy breezy, right? But we could think that, except we see a crack in the armor. And an armor crack, the crack in the armor is this. He says, wanting to justify himself. He wants to make sure that he's doing all that. And just think about the assumptions that he's making before he asks the question about neighbors. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Check. Got that. And then Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, well, if depends on what you mean by that. If you mean neighbor the way the Talmud says neighbor, check. But I want to make sure that you're orthodox. So why don't you tell me what you mean by neighbor? <laughs> uh, and so Jesus tells him this little story. He tells him this story. The man walking from this treacherous road from Jerusalem down, 4,000 feet down this uh, treacherous mountain path into Jericho. There's still a road there, and it still freaks people out when they travel to Israel. Bus travelers traveling up that road are terrified because the road is so windy and so treacherous. And they were all, it was notorious, it was called the way of blood in some literature because it was so notorious for being uh, a place where you would just get robbed. And so this man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's robbed, not only robbed, but beaten, all of his clothes are taken, he's left for dead, and here comes a priest and a Levite. A priest is a man like a pastor in, in our context, he should like know he should know about the Old Testament passages that talk about loving the stranger, about that more, worth more than a thousand bulls of sacrifice is to, is to show mercy and kindness to the foreigner, to the stranger. He should know these things, but he walks, he not only walks by him, he walks across the street is what it says. He walks across the path, he crosses the street so he doesn't have to walk by this guy. And then the Levite comes. The Levites were like, uh, like, like uh, l- they worked in the temple. They did temple guard. They, did, uh, um, they weren't priests, but they did a lot of work in the temple. They were like 
lay leaders or maybe deacons in the church. This guy also, he represents like the lady. He should have known better, but he doesn't. He crosses the road instead. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, there's all kind of guessing about their motive, but he doesn't say. It doesn't say. In fact, it's a story. <laughs> it's not a real life event. It's a story that Jesus gives. So there really is no motive behind it. But in the Jewish mind, they may have thought, well, they didn't want to touch a dead body, so they went across the street. And the Talmud said that we are to love our neighbors, but not sinners. You don't have to love sinners. You don't have to love uh, basically non-Jews. So they maybe the point is that they had most likely religious arguments for why it was that they didn't have to help this guy. And they both passed him by. And then Jesus uses uh, in the story the one kind of person that in the Jewish mind would be least likely to help a Jew. Obviously, the guy's a Jew. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. What those, what those religious arguments, false religious arguments that allow us to be callous in the face of injustice do is they in some way, shape, or form dehumanize people. Maybe they say, well, they're not of us. Maybe they're sinners. They deserve what they got. Maybe they say, you know, well, we can't help him because he's just going to use that money for drugs anyways. All sorts of reasonable religious excuses that dehumanize the person, that dehumanize the image of God in that person. And so Jesus picks the person that the Jews had dehumanized more than anybody else and sets him up as the guy who actually shows love to this man. And, and we, we miss about half of it because we're not culturally aware of what this whole would all mean. Not just that the Jews despised the Samaritans, uh, but, but what the Samaritan actually did. He shows, he shows compassion for a known enemy. He knows this man's a Jew, helps him anyways. Uh, he bounds his wounds, probably with his own clothing. He gives him expensive oil and wine. Uh, he br- brings him to an inn that could care for him, which was not cheap, he stays overnight with him. Ten, verse 35 says, on the next day, he goes to the innkeeper. And here's where we really miss it. He gives the innkeeper two denarii, uh, which if you do the math, we know from some plaques and scriptures that we found, in, staying at the inn was about one thirty-second of a denarii per night. And if you do the math, he gave him two months worth of lodging two months worth of lodging. And then on top of that, he like opens a credit card tab, <laughs> trusting this innkeeper, and says, whatever he needs, charge it to my credit card, and I'm coming back. The picture that we miss, because we can't put all those cultural pieces together, the picture that that group of Jewish scholars would have been keenly aware of Uh, was that this was a picture of extravagant, lavish love and compassion poured out on this man. And you can just imagine the blood draining out of this lawyer's face. Because really what Jesus is saying is, do you love like that? Have you ever 
loved anyone like that? Do you even love your family like that? The people you're supposed to love, your wife, your kids, even the closest people that you love the most, do you even love them like that? And Jesus, through this story, just brings it, rips it open his heart and brings it right out of the open. He says, the only person you have ever loved like that is yourself. Boom. Implication, no salvation for you. And praise God the story doesn't end there. (laughs) Because although we don't love like that, although we've never loved like that, and probably never will, there is one person who has loved like that. And so Jesus, Jesus just, just tears this guy open and everyone who's listening to him shows them this reality, not to shame them, not to like make them feel bad or not to tell them, go now, go out and try harder to get this right. He pulls that out as the reality of who they are, who we are, so that he can then present the gospel and we can see it as beautiful as it truly is. Oh, second point, we can see the beauty of the gospel. There's another, here's another interpretation of this passage from the early church. This is from, or, a guy named Origen came up with this, but a bunch of, of church fathers have totally signed on to this. And his, Origen's interpretation was, uh, was this, the man who goes down is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world, the robbers are hostile demonic powers, the priest is the law, the Levites are the prophets, the Samaritan is Christ, the wounds are disobedience, uh, the beast is the Lord's body, the animal is the Lord's body, the inn which accepts all who wish to enter is the church, the manager of the inn is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted, and the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. Ta-da! <laughs> Done, right? So look, it, uh, I, I want to bring that out because this really can be really easy to get carried away with this kind of stuff. However, there's some indicators in here that Jesus is also teaching something about himself through this passage. That word, when it says Jesus, or the, when it says the Samaritan had compassion on him, that's a, a special word, a strong word that talks about this deep, intense emotional response to the suffering of others and it's used 12 times in the New Testament. It's 10 times used for Jesus and his response to seeing sin in the world. Once it's used for the father in the parable of the prodigal son when the father has compassion on him and it spurs him to drop everything and run down the road to meet his son who's coming up the road and shower him with kisses and love before the son even has a chance to get out his I'm so very sorry speech. And the third time, or the twelfth, is here, the Samaritan. Isaiah says in one six that our depravity, the condition of our soul, is like covered with bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And in fifty three, chapter fifty three, Isaiah says that it's by Jesus' wounds that our wounds are healed. That Jesus has taken our wounds upon himself 
and bound us up and bound up our wounds and healed us. Uh, and, and the picture, listen, the picture, big picture of, of the incarnation of what God intended to do from before the creation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted together to save a sinful people. It was all in terms, Paul gives it in terms of this lavish, extravagant love that's poured out onto his people. Listen to, this is in the first chapter of Ephesians. Super well-known passage, but let's listen. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose he set, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. You know what he's saying? You read the story. First time you read the story, well, who do you identify with? Who do you want to be in the story? We all want to be the Samaritan. We want to be the good guy. Jesus smashes that and says, no, that's not who you are. Maybe you're the robbers. Maybe you identify with the robbers. Maybe you're the people, maybe you're the one who's perpetrating injustice in the world or has done that and you know it. Uh, Maybe you're the priest and the Levite. Maybe you've used tidy religious arguments to shield yourself from conscious and from injustice in the world. Maybe you identify with the guy who's been beaten and is left for dead. I think it's a composite picture. I think we can all identify with that different parts, different times of our lives. That's the picture. That's, listen, that is the picture of who we really are, which means That is who God knew we were and are when he chose to come and die for us. He came because of our sins, not in spite of them. And he predestined that from the beginning of all time. He knew that was going to happen. Your sin is no surprise. He pours out his grace on us lavishly. He took our, his, our wounds upon himself in order to heal us so that he could bring us into relationship with himself because that's who God is. That's who God is. None of those things about you or your character will or can prevent God from pouring his lavish love and grace upon you because it's not about those things. His lavish love and grace is, is to heal those things and it's on purpose. He did it on purpose with intent, premeditated from before the foundation of the earth. So 
So what do you think happened to the lawyer? Doesn't say. <laughs> Jesus like drops the bomb and then Luke switch scene, switches scenes. And as they were traveling along their way, you're like, what happened? I don't know. And the, there's a parallel story where Jesus says to the lawyer when he gets these things, he says to him, the kingdom of heaven, you're not far. The kingdom of heaven is not far from you. I'd like to think that, I don't think he put it together right there, but after the death and resurrection of Jesus, I'd like to think and hope that he put those pieces together and figured it out. But that the Spirit pressed it on him and he understood the majesty of God and the reality of the brutality of the cross that that was the healing power of God in the world saving him from his sins and that is what is intended to leave us speechless experiencing the emotional response of awe overwhelmed with the reality of that that's who God is in his character and that's what he's done for us and how safe we are in that that we should be so struck by awestruck wonder that we are speechless Uh, it gives us joy and we experience the love of God which compels us to love others and that's the third part third part extending the kingdom of God into the world now here's where the spirituality of the church guys come in and they say see it's about salvation and that's it it's got nothing to do with justice in the world nothing at all nothing to see here those things are good those things are nice but that's not what this is about and really the message that comes across with that is those things are good they're nice but they're optional uh but let's, just because that's not the main point of the story doesn't mean that there's some part in that. Let me be Captain Obvious for a minute and say this is Jesus uh, expressing to us the intent of the law that we are, we are called to love our neighbors and we are called to love them in this way. Why? To make ourselves presentable to God? To let him love us? No, he's just smashed that view. Smashed it. You can never ever do that. That's the point. Never, ever do that. But, he says, as these wave after wave of God's grace and mercy runs over us, it begins to change us from the inside out. He's given us a new heart, and we respond to that. It starts to work itself out, and we begin, little by little, to start loving in the way that God loves. He starts to shape us into the image of Jesus. Uh, and that is is his blessing and joyful for us. And what it does, listen, here's what it does. As we increase in our knowledge of the true gospel, a friend of mine called it the full-throated gospel the other day. As we get that, uh, it compels us to model the same kind of love into the world and what happens is we create an unforgettable display of God's character, of the nature of his rule, 
the ethics of his kingdom, what he is like, what his kingdom is like out into the world. Uh, Jesus said, Jesus says, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's nothing about us. It's about responding to the love of God in our lives uh, in such a way that we put on display the love of God for the world that watches. Listen to this. There was, uh, I got this from uh, Tim Keller. Gave, gave me this, uh, I got this quote from Tim Keller. You all know about Constantine, the emperor Constantine, early uh, third century, became converted to Christianity. Roman Empire started to convert to Christianity. Like after him, two guys after him, there was another, another emperor named Julian the Apostate. <laughs> you mean, I mean, I'm here. He didn't pick that name, right? <laughs> he was like Caesarus, Julianus, Augustus, or something like that. Uh, but he's known. He's known as Julian the Apostate because he tried to turn it all around. He tried to turn the ship around. He tried to revitalize and revamp all the pagan temples and get everybody to come back to the pagan temples. Uh, and he failed. He failed. Listen why. This is, he wrote a letter to a good friend of his who was a pagan priest, and he said this. He said, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. <clears throat> Nobody had ever heard of that before. There wasn't, any, there wasn't any really social expectation to care for the sick or the poor. If you had, if you had someone who was sick or dying... Uh, there was an island in the Tiber River. You would just send them there and let them walk it out, <laughs> wither away and die. If you had a child that was deformed or unwanted, you would leave him or her, usually her, out on a pile somewhere to be exposed to the elements or on the doorstep of a temple to God knows what would happen to them. There was no... There was, no, there was no cultural value, really, of caring for the sick, the poor, the dying. And then Christians came along with their understanding of the sanctity of life. Uh, and they not only were caring for their own people, but caring for all the people around them. And it was so mind-blowing to people. It created such a clear picture and image of the mercy and character and love of God. That they, became, they were like, what's up? I want to know more about this. There was three big explosions in the early church, first century, second century, sixth century. They all corresponded, or second, third, and sixth. They all corresponded with major plagues that ripped through North Africa, Carthage, Italy, uh, uh, in, in Western Europe. Uh, in the thir- second century, this, uh, the, or the, Anto- the Antonine Plague, second century, the Cyprian Plague, third century, the Justinian Plague, sixth century. In each and every one of those cases, the Christians stayed behind in the plague areas, cared for the poor at the expense of their own lives. And in those moments, the church exploded in those moments. Now, I'm not saying we're not to preach the gospel. We're not to have precise theology. We're not to study hard and know what the Bible is, the 
What I'm saying is we in the 20th and 21st century make the grave mistake of thinking that most people come to an understanding of Christianity through logic. We think that logic is the main source of conversion in the world. It's an important part. We have to know the real gospel. That's a part of it. It's the seventh sola of the rationalist reformation by logic alone. And we create all these apologetic arguments uh, and we live in our luxury and we cross the road and we wonder why nobody listens. Tim Keller said, Tim Keller said, look, if, if we do not lead with the beauty of sacrificial love, people have every right to write us off. We're just another religious cult shilling our view of metaphysics. But when we lead with a display of the character and the beauty of God, not only uh, do we love people and, and become people who love other people and have the joy of that, but we display the gospel, we display the character of God. We show the world uh, what grace is, what, saint, what the value of human life is, why the image of God that's in every single person. We cross cultural and social and ethnic barriers. Uh, we give of ourselves to help the homeless and the poor. And, and, and through that, people recognize the beauty, the divine beauty of it. And being drawn to that, they're then in a position to hear the logic, recognize the truth, and submit themselves to that beauty and truth. So, that's why it's important. We need to know who we are so we can see against that backdrop just the astonishing reality of what the gospel says about God and who he is and what he's done. And in that speechless, awestruck wonder, we begin to be compelled to do the same, which presents a picture of God to the world, which then forms bridges for us in evangelism. And so that's why both of those things put together are true. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would make us a church like that. We pray that you would make us a church that that knows how sin affects our minds, know how easy it is to stray from truth so that we desperately cling to you and your revealed word. Uh, we cling to the truth of the true gospel, that the gospel is the incarnation of Jesus, the incarnation of God, the perfect and righteous life where Jesus fulfilled all of the moral obligations of the law as our champion and then died to pay the cosmic, satisfy the cosmic justice that must be against our sin and all for the purpose of bringing us into fellowship with you. Help us to hold that clearly in our minds and to preach it clearly. But we also pray, Lord, that you would help us to feel uh, and be compelled to act 
in similar ways towards not just the church, but the world around us, Lord, as we are able, with the resources you've given us, in, a, in balance, keeping in mind our obligations to love our families and wives and to, to serve you through various vocations that you have placed us in. Uh, help us, Lord. Help us to lead with sacrificial love so that we might, in the midst of that, bring the gospel. Help us be that kind of church, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.